Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, Wednesday, November 6, 2013. This is episode 1242, 1242 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you today. You might notice the show is coming out a bit late, especially for a midweek show. I mean, Friday shows come out late all the time because they take so long to produce. But uh, I've got James Wesley Rawls coming on, and I knew I had that interview coming up today, and I figured why cram a standalone interview into the morning? Go ahead and wait on it and get it out for you now. Um and the reason that happened is I had to go speak at a Mulligan Mint. And uh, that made me reschedule my interview from yesterday to Thursday. That'll be Paul Wheaton. So it'll probably be late tomorrow that the show will come out as well. I'll probably do the same thing tomorrow. Uh, just to stay on track now that we're back on a regularly scheduled programming. That way we have a Friday show on Friday and we don't have three guest shows next week or something like that. So that's why I made that decision. This is going to be a great interview. I had a great time talking to James. Uh, I know a lot of you guys know that there are certain areas that we have disagreements with. And the reason you might hear our disagreements more than our agreements is because it's more interesting when two people disagree uh, when you're talking from a distance. But when you're talking close up, I try to focus on what we agree. And I think you'll hear that James and I are largely in sync on a lot of things, and uh, I think you get a lot out of it. I also had the opportunity to get some questions gathered up for James from you guys uh, on the uh, blog uh, with a little quick notice uh, post, and I did work some of them, not all of them in. Anyway, before I bring Jim on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. It's shocking that you would get Berkey's from the Berkey guy, but you do. You'll actually hear James make a really good case today for why filtering water is so important and why water needs to be at your top of list for your preparedness planning. Uh, if you want to do that, there's not many ways better to do so than with a Berkey. And if you want to get a Berkey guy, don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. Why would you do such a thing? Go to the Berkey guy. In all seriousness, Jeff is an amazing, amazing guy. He is a fanatical person when it comes to customer service and support. If you want to deal with him, go to his website, directive21.com, directive and the numbers 21.com. And uh, he has a lot of things beyond Berkey's uh, for your preparedness needs, from long, preparedness needs from long-term storage food to other great stuff. Check him out today, directive21.com. Best way to visit Jeff, Lou Berkey, Guy Gleason, and all of our sponsors would actually be to go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. First, my website, and click on their banner in the right-hand margin. It doesn't track anything. I don't really care that way. Just that way I know you're dealing with my actual sponsors. That's why I recommend that because they won't be on my site if they're not my actual sponsors. Uh, next up today, JM Bullion. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit about silver and gold today, too. If you want to get American Silver Eagles, generic silver rounds, gold, stuff like that, JM Bullion's a great supplier. They've been with us now for almost a year. They're doing great things uh, for our audience. Everybody seems to love them. Whenever I do have any kind of a little hiccup or somebody needs some help, I can get in touch with their president immediately by email or phone. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for in a sponsor. Check them out, jmbullion.com. Remember that JM Bullion, the Berkey guy, and many of our other sponsors do discounts for our members of our support brigade. If you log into the MSB, uh, you'll be able to use those discounts before you order, so make sure you're always checking if you're a member. If you're not a member, hey, now's a good time to consider becoming a member. You'll support my show at an absolute whopping, amazing 18.3 cents per episode. Uh, that's about 50 bucks a year. If you're military law enforcement's Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, firefighter, someone like that, uh, or law enforcement officer, and you email me before you join with subject uh, with the subject saying service discount, I will uh, respond back to you with a discount code to thank you for your service. It will save you even more money on a product that already saves you a lot of money. The Member Support Brigade is the primary way that I pay my bills and keep the show on the air. Uh, check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and you'll notice that it is not, I repeat, not just, hey, help Jack out with the show. It is a product that provides value back to its members many times over. Check it out today, the survivalpodcast.com and click on members or the member support brigade banner. Before I bring uh, James on today, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at 
uh, this episode in history, you know, they say this day in history, we do this day, this episode in history, just focusing on the year. Uh, not a hugely eventful year. Um, there's an interesting little thing that went on in the science world, though, uh, and that is a timeline of medicine and medical technology. IBN Nafis suggests that the right and left ventricles of the heart are separate and describes the lesser circulation of blood. That's pretty advanced knowledge for the year 1242 to understand exactly kind of how the heart works. Um, it's interesting to note that when you go back into these time frames, there was a lot of taboo around cutting open a dead body and examining things. If you look at a lot of the, the work of uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and anatom anatomical drawings, a lot of those were basically from grave robberies, uh, putting him at risk uh, from prosecution by the church for desecration of a corpse. So today when somebody dies, you know, we'll, we'll slice and dice them if they've said it's okay and given their consent for that, and we learn a lot about medical knowledge from that examination. There wasn't as much of that going on. You would have think, thought, though, that, uh, that you know, medical science would have learned a lot simply by looking at animals, but I think there was a concept that we were a lot different from animals than we really are in, in, in an anatomical sense maybe at the time due to certain, you know, traditions and religious uh, uh, bias and things like that. Uh, but it's interesting to note that that long ago that it was understood uh, the basic structure and functioning of the human heart. Uh, not everything that we'll look at in our uh, our history segment will always be uh, absolutely awful in nature. Uh, the Mongols uh, and the Golden Hordes uh, devastate Volga, Bulgaria, and force the nation to pay a tribute. Remember, we all are looking right now at this time frame at kind of the high tide line of the uh, the Mongol Empire. But again, we were talking about them being in Poland yesterday, uh, Bulgaria today, Hungary yesterday. Uh, so it's it's something to, to learn from that a threat that seems very, very far away from you can sometimes come up and get very, very close to you very, very fast. For many of the people in the uh, 1200s, that's what the Mongol uh, invasions were. Um, something that looked like it wasn't a threat, and next thing you know, there it was, with death and destruction and disease coming along with it. Uh, with that, we've got the history segment wrapped up, and I'd like to uh, introduce our special guest, James Wesley Rawls, who prefers to be called Jim, by the way, is a former United States Army intelligence officer and survivalist. He's a well-known survivor lecturer and author. He's the editor of survivalblog.com, one of the nation's most popular blogs on family preparedness. And uh, he's here with us today to discuss thoughts on preparedness, survivalism, threats to our society, and his new book, And with that, hey, Jim, hey Jim, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jack. Um, most of my audience is really fully aware of who you are. You've, you've been around and well-known for a long time due to your writing. And uh, But if you could, I always try to get guests just to start out with telling us a little bit about their background and how they got where they are, because most people don't you know, grow up as little eight-year-old boys thinking, well, I grew up, I'm going to write novels about the coming collapse, right? <laughs> so if you could give us you know, the, the elevator version of how you ended up doing what you do now. Sure. Uh, I came from a, a pioneer family that came out west by covered wagon in the 1850s. And that pioneer spirit, the spirit of self-sufficiency, never wore off in my family. I also grew up in the town of Livermore, California, which is the home of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where they designed nuclear weapons. So I grew up in a town that uh, had the highest number of home bomb shelters per capita in the country. We had a very high recognition of threats that faced our society, especially the threat of nuclear war. And most of the kids that I grew up with were the sons and daughters of physicists. So we had a, a pretty high recognition uh, that we lived in a, a fragile society and the, the multitude of threats that face us. So I guess it was pretty much natural that I would fall into this. I later worked as an uh, Army intelligence officer. I did a total of six years, got out as a captain. I resigned my co commission uh, right after, in fact, the day after Bill Clinton took office. And with that kind of in in mind, what, what led you to start writing? 
Well, I recognized that uh, societies can be quite fragile. I recognized the fragility of our own society. And originally I was thinking about writing a survival manual uh, since I came from a background as a technical writer and as an intelligence analyst, but I realized that most people will not sit down and read a 300-page survival manual. It, it just goes against their nature. But a lot of people will sit down and read a novel, so I decided to write a survival manual dressed as fiction, and that's where my first novel, Patriots, came from. Before we get into that and your your latest book that's come out, um, you're just widely known as being quite switched on about the threats that, that our nation and, frankly, our world faces. What do you see as the three most likely disasters that America, you know, the disasters that America might face, to, at, you know, at a, at a national level, not just, you know, a regional thing like a hurricane or something like that? Well, on a national or international level, I would say that the greatest threats we face are uh, from a economic collapse from a massive solar storm or from a global pandemic. I think those are probably the three biggies. Those are the three situations that are the most likely that would cause a societal collapse. And most of my writings are geared toward living through a societal collapse, a, a grid-down collapse. My philosophy is that although those situations are not quite as likely as a as a local short-term situation. By preparing for the worst case, you can handle anything lesser in stride. So um, I've always encouraged my my readers to be prepared for a worst case. On, on the economic collapse, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. When I read your first uh, your first book, your first novel. Um, the collapse in that comes really, really quickly, almost overnight. And, of course, we both know that there's a lot of things that lead up to that event. When I read your blog, though, I kind of take away from that that you have a feeling that a, a, an economic collapse in modern society would be more of a slow death spiral than a you know overnight boom, there it is. But it might feel that way right at the end to everybody that's been asleep right. and switched yeah. the entire time. Exactly, Jack. I think that we've been in a slow slide since about 2001. And at some point, though, things are going to accelerate very quickly, and we're going to see the, the rapid demise of the U.S. dollar. And God forbid we could see a, a complete societal unraveling with a power grid collapse. And, and, of course, the power grids are the linchpin that holds modern Western societies together. Absolutely. Now, I'm actually getting some questions from uh, crowdsourcing while we're going because people know you're on today. And this one fits right into that. Um, what is your opinion on China and its rise to power and how that might play with play in with all of this? Well, I think there's a bit of paranoia about China, but uh, a lot of our concerns about China, I think, are very well placed. Uh, China is definitely maneuvering toward being uh, the predominant superpower Right now, uh, they're definitely pushing toward the yuan as the world's reserve currency. They're doing everything they can to undermine the U.S. dollar. And, um, of course, <laughs> uh, so is Ben Bernanke, for that matter. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that China is definitely on the rise, and we have to be quite concerned that... Um, China is doing more than just saber-rattling. Saber a, a week ago, they had some pronouncements about potential nuclear targets in the United States coming directly out of the Chinese military. Whenever you see something like that, it's definitely cause for concern. Yeah, I think that their their military stance is pretty much similar to the, the Soviets during the, the Cold War. Of we don't we, This can't be done by either of us. Neither of us can really stand this. But that also means so you shall not interfere militarily with what we're doing, and the, the 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 game board therefore is open on you know the financial aspects of the world and uh, global domination from that side of things. And I think that they're really positioned a lot better than we are to weather the storm. They are you know the basically the largest uh, nation as far as reserves of hard commodities, uh, not per capita, but in total, where we're the largest de you know, debtor nation and where we right. owe more money than anybody yeah, they're, else. They're very well positioned. Um, and the, about the only thing that we have in our favor right now is that 
we're a key trading partner for them, a key market for all their manufactured goods, and I guess they don't want to to kill that golden goose. Uh, right now, there's over a thousand metric tons of gold per month flowing from Western nations into China, primarily through Hong Kong. That figure is just absolutely staggering, and I think. At the point where our gold runs out and all we have left is paper and empty promises, I think that's the point where the international community is going to absolutely turn their back on the dollar. They're going to demand huge increases in the rate of return on American treasuries. And at that point, uh, the American uh, debt will be unsustainable. That's where everything will fall apart. Yeah, I think the reason it hasn't happened already is kind of what you touched on there with we're a key trading partner. The rest of the world cannot afford for the USS S of A to go down right now. We would pull everybody in our wake, and I think they're rapidly rowing their boats away from our Titanic, and when they get far enough away that they feel they can weather our demise, then they'll stop propping us up, because in a lot of ways we are being propped up right now uh, by people that can't afford for us to go away. Yeah, we certainly are, especially with the the artificial um, rates uh, that are being uh, charged for interest. For example, are, they're just ridiculously low. The, uh, the the zero interest rate policy was a creation of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, but it takes two to tango. Our foreign trading partners are going along with that because it's expedient. For example, it's doing great things for um, Chinese exports. But at some point, you know, the piper has to be paid. They're going to demand higher rates of return, and I'm talking substantially higher. If we had double-digit interest rates, it would absolutely crater our economy overnight. And that could, and it could happen overnight if uh, confidence in the dollar is lost and interest rates spike. Now, your three big disasters, uh, coronal mass ejection, uh, which is you have a grid down, uh, an economic collapse, which if you have it bad enough, at least in some areas of the country, you're going to end up with grid down. Right. Both of those scenarios play right into your third uh, global pandemic. If you right. have this type of grid down scenario, you're going to have a pandemic. So really, if you get any one, you get at least parts of the other two. That, that's with, right. And, and again, the, the, the power grids are the linchpin. You know, if we had a pandemic, we wouldn't have enough workers showing up at the public utilities to keep the lights on. In fact, yeah. under NRC regulations, if they don't have a certain level of staffing for nuclear power plants, they're required by law to shut those plants down. Yeah, and some of them aren't so easy to shut down either. That's another problem <laughs> in of itself. Uh, now, there was just, on that note, they just had a series of, or a uh, documentary or whatever you want to call it, a non-reality TV thing called American Blackout, uh, which I watched because I kind of felt like I had to, given what I do, and you may have done the same thing. Likewise, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I really was television, but I watched it over the Internet. Yeah, I didn't really want to, but I felt like I had to, just so I could comment on it. My pain in watching that was how, and I hate to put it this way, but how stupid most of the people seem during it. And going, unfortunately, that may be exactly the type of um, naivety that people will have when something like this begins. How do you see something? Do you agree? And if you do, how does that add to the threat? Jack, I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's definitely a sheeple mentality. We live in a pampered society that basically has no clue about how to survive in in a grid down world. At least in third world countries, they're used to the power going off regularly. And when the power comes back on, it's cause for celebration, and it's time to fill every water container they have because because they know the water's going to uh, the power's going to be out, and the and the uh, publicly uh, public utility water is is also going to fail. In third world countries, they also know how to handle sanitation in the absence of municipal water. At least they have the common sense to be able to you know, dig latrines. But in in America, people have no clue. They'll be fouling their own water supplies within days. It's going to be a public health nightmare. So I I think that we we definitely live in a pampered society, that we have a nation of sheeple, and unfortunately the loss of life that will take place if there's a grid-down collapse for more than a few days will be horrendous. It will start going exponential. 
I, I unfortunately completely agree with that. With, with all of this in mind, in your opinion, what should be the highest priority for people when it comes to family preparedness? I'd say water is at the very top of the list because without water, you're going to be a refugee within 24 hours. Every family needs to have a top quality water filter. In fact, I recommend buying two, uh, a compact filter like a Katahdin and a large ceramic filter like a Big Berkey or an Aqua Rain. I think that should be the very top of everyone's priority list. Uh, beyond that, you know, there's a whole huge list. In fact, I have a whole list of lists in an Excel spreadsheet at my website uh, that people need to go through from everything from food storage to communications equipment, first aid, the whole works. Uh, there, there's a lot of aspects that need to be considered and since time is relatively short, I think people need to be very systematic about the way they stock up. It's definitely high time to stock up and team, team up and train up. And, again, folks can check out my website at survivalblog.com. In the left-hand bar, just click on List of Lists, and that Excel spreadsheet will come up. Now, you talk about what you call well-balanced, preparedness, well-balanced preparedness. In your opinion, what exactly is that? Well, I've noticed that a lot of Americans tend to go overboard in particular areas. Um, people tend to develop um, crazes and manias about things in, in, our, in our own lives. Um, so in the, in the preparedness world, someone who's a shooter probably is going to expand their gun collection at the expense of having water filtration and, and a you know, well-balanced food storage plan. Someone who's a doctor would probably go overboard on medical supplies, but might leave out communications equipment. And then the corollary to that is someone who's already a ham radio operator might be, go heavy into photovoltaics and alternative power and inverters and communications equipment, but again, at the expense of something like food storage. So it's really important that people be maintain real balance in their preparations. You really owe it to your family. You, you want to be able to look around the, the dinner table at your family someday after the lights go out and be able to say, I did the very best I could to prepare. But if you go overboard in one area, obviously you're wasting energy, time, money. I completely agree. I mean, I'd like kind of your thoughts on how I've been explaining this to people. I came at this originally, at least, from a background as, as a, a hunter and a fisherman that spent an awful lot of time way back into my teens being very far from, from home, uh, often on my own, with a good, solid background in wilderness survival mentality. Uh, not because I spent a lot of time in survival situations, because I didn't want to spend time in survival situations. <laughs> I, want, I wanted to be okay. So... Then there is an assessment that we would do before we would go out, and that would be your, you know, your five basic survival needs while you're gone: are food, water, uh, shelter, security, and 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 uh, fire, which right. I have changed to be more universal when it comes to society as a whole as is energy. And then you don't really think a lot about health and nutrition type things when you're, you know, and being sick when you're out in the wilderness because you go and if you get sick, you try to get your butt back as quick as you can. So I've added to it the six and my, my thought process and the way that I try to teach people for preparedness is think about those six needs. We, and health and sanitation also has to do, of course, with waste removal. Right. And you need to constantly be evaluating those six areas. How will I deal with my energy requirements? That's not just solar and photovoltaics, but how do I stay warm? How do I stay cool? How do I cook my food? Um, how do I deal with an illness or an injury? How do I deal with making sure I'm fed and, and get clean water? And if I get water, my potential for disease goes down. And it's those six areas that are the actual needs of society. Mm -hmm. And the, there are systems of support that we are largely dependent on for every one of those six things. Right. And it's interesting to have discussions about economic collapse because I think you and I are very much on the mark. And if I had to let it go, we could have spent an hour just on reasons for that. But it's, it, it's interesting to have those discussions, and they wake up minds. But the reality is, and I hate doomsday preppers for this, you know, what are you preparing for? I'm preparing for X, Y, Z. 
I don't believe that people should be preparing for an economic collapse or for, um, you know, the grid to just go off or whatever it is. I think they should be preparing from the mentality standpoint of dealing without those systems of support right. because then it doesn't matter what causes them to go away, you're prepared for it. Right. The, the only exception would be a nuclear situation where you need to sure. have mass for, sh for shielding from gamma rays. But other than that, the preparations for just about any situation are relatively universal. And I'm really glad that even though you came from a wilderness survival background, you see the importance of preparing in depth. I think one of the big mistakes that, that I run into the most often with my consulting clients and with my readers is people naively think that they can strap on a, a backpack and head out into the wilderness with an axe and uh, play Daniel Boone and survive. <laughs> it's just really naive to think that's going to happen. Your statistical chances are, are nil. Especially in a major disaster when those resources come under pressure that they're not under while you're doing all your exactly. wilderness yeah. trips. Exactly. Right? Everyone's going to be. You won't be the only one. Yeah. Yeah. You won't be the only one with that idea. Right. So it's really important that people be prepared to either hunker down where they are or have a very well stocked retreat that's under the watchful eye of, of neighbors or relatives that you can trust, and stock up in depth. You can't do it all out of out of one backpack or even one vehicle. Uh, the whole mobile retreating thing, I think, is another fantasy. You, you can't hold enough in an RV to supply a family for an extended period of time. You're just going to end up being another refugee, and you're probably going to end up running out of gas wh where you really don't want to run out of gas. Uh, so, um, I think it, it's people need to, to throw aside their naive fantasies and be realistic about preparedness, stock up to the very best they can, make do with the circumstances they're in. I know everyone listening to this uh, is, you know, has different levels of, of, of a budget available for, for all of this. People need to, to prioritize, set a budget, and do the very best they can. I also recognize that not everyone can afford to move to the boonies like I have. The vast majority of people listening to my voice right now live either in cities or suburbs, and the majority of them live east of the Missouri River, where there's a high population density. Yes, it's great to be able to move out to the inland northwest and, and have, be surrounded like national forest, but not everyone can do that because of family situations, work situations, uh, chronic health conditions, or whatever. Most people cannot move, so they need to do the very best where they are with what they have. How important do you think, then, that it is that we – work on building communities and teams where we are. I mean, I've always said I don't care if you can go out in the middle of nowhere. You're still done if you're by yourself. That's right. I, I think that community is, is very important. I do encourage people to organize at the neighborhood level, especially for people in the suburbs. Without friends that you can count on and neighbors you can count on, you're going to be a statistic because there's just no way that you can maintain 24-hour security. For a retreat, you, you just can't, not with one family. And even with two families, you might, might have the manpower for security, but then how are you going to feed yourself? You need three or four families working together uh, to have both security and the, uh, you know, a, a viable large-scale garden, for example, and, and the ability to raise livestock and to cut hay. There's a lot that goes into it. It really, you know, I, I hate to use a leftist cliche, but it really does take a village. In some ways, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, my concern has often been that we prepare too much for a without rule of law scenario, and that's certainly a possibility. But there's another scenario that I see as being highly likely, especially in certain areas, and it's what, you know, WROL, everybody says that. I, I've coined a term EROL, which is excessive rule of law. <laughs> Boy, and, yeah. and I think that, for instance, when I read your book, uh, your first book, the first time I actually had dread for the for the characters you were developing was when the government showed up. Right. People were getting shot, people were looting, all this stuff was going on. But you, you kind of look at that as well. If you're well prepared, you at least have an opportunity to 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 deal with the situation. When you're dealing with a tyrannical government, the situation shifts drastically, and you know, it might make interesting 
uh, novels to talk about fighting a war with the government, but in, in many different ways that that could come down, it may not be practical. Um, what what preparations, and I think this is why people don't talk about it. It's a lot harder question to answer. What preparations do you make to deal with that? Well, there you really need to develop networks uh, of like-minded people who can be circumspect about their preparations. Because if, if you have an overt hierarchical structure for an organization, you're basically setting yourself up to be targeted. And I think that anyone who has uh, the EROL scenario in the back of their minds should probably be doing most of their prepping very quietly, where they're not leaving a paper trail, organizing in such a way that they're not leaving an electronic trail of breadcrumbs, or cookie crumbs, I guess is what they should be called. <laughs> so uh, that that's the way people should be preparing. You have to be very circumspect about your preparations, and you have to get involved with only folks you know that you can trust. Because um, in a situation where there's martial law or where there's, uh, you know, God forbid, an invasion or any other number of, of scenarios where you end up facing a tyrannical government, it's only the people who uh, keep their profile low that will have a chance to basically submerge themselves, not attract government attention, and uh, get through this in a way where they have a, at least a chance of resisting uh, with, a, with, with, with a modicum of success. So here's one from the uh, the blog post uh, somebody's asking. It says, I know James is a big proponent of the American readout area. That's probably because you coined the phrase. Um, at one time, he seemed to think there were some places in Tennessee that were good retreat areas as well. What changed uh, to take that off the list? Well, I never took it off the list. I just didn't consider it prime. I, ah. I, I think that the Cumberland Plateau region that uh, that basically straddles the uh, Tennessee-Kentucky border uh, is about as good as it gets in the east uh, because there you have defendable terrain, you have a fairly light population density, you have plentiful water, uh, you have a lot of places with natural gas wells, for example. Um, like uh, I, I said, one of my novels, locales, is Muddy Pond, Tennessee, which is on the Cumberland Plateau. And when I visited there a few years ago, uh, I was driving around, and I saw a, a sorghum plant. It was a, a small family-based business, and uh, they were they had all these great big tanks of sorghum that they were boiling down, just like the same way they boil down, uh, boil down uh, molasses or, or boil down um, maple syrup in the Northeast. And we stopped by to talk with them there, and I said, well, well what are you using for your for your uh, energy here to, to, for all these processes. They said, oh, well, we have a natural gas well right here on the property. Hmm. That, it's a, you know, there's places, if you look around, you can find places that have both water and abundant energy available. There's places with natural gas wells. There's places, you can buy properties that have a surface coal seam where you can, where you can mine coal. Or in my case, you know, I, I'm surrounded by millions of acres of national forest and all the firewood in the world, and um, I don't have a steam engine, but, um, you know, if, if we had a long-term societal collapse, I'm sure steam technology would probably come back. <laughs> it, I also it, live in an area where there's tremendously plentiful hydroelectric power, and if the, if the grid has a chance of being reconstituted, it'll happen in a place like this first. How do you feel about the scenario that's been floated? I can't remember the guy's name, Sergey something from the USSR, that you might see a uh, a breakup of the United States similar to what the Soviet Union experienced. I mean, we in Texas oh, no, have a pretty – Dmitry Orlov? That's it, yeah. yeah. I mean, down here in Texas, we have a pretty big um, contingent of people that feel that in some ways the, the a huge part of this nation is pulling us down with them. 
we have our own electrical grid. We can right. not only extract but refine energy. Um, and in some cases, when you look at the Soviet Union falling apart, it wasn't like a war of secession. It was just like we can't afford this anymore. And the, the collapse was more of a, of a letting go than a, a direct secession. And uh, Dimitri or, or what have you seems to feel that that is a possibility here. I don't know if I buy into its exact scenario, but I think it's at least possible. Well, it, it certainly is, and I think uh, Texas of, of all the states probably has the the one of the better chances of making that happen. Uh, the inland Northwest is another good area. Uh, another area would be like the Four Corners region. Uh, I, I think that. If there if there is any sort of partition, I ha- and I hate to use the term secession because it really isn't. It's partition. Um, that will take the consent of the larger, um, the larger body, whether it's the, the whole United States with Texas, or whether it's um, you know Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington splitting off from the western halves of their states. Unfortunately, uh, in most cases, it's it's smaller populations splitting off from larger ones, and it's going to take the consent of those larger po- populations for that partition to take place if it's going to be a political partition. Now, there could be just a de facto partition. If there's an economic collapse, Texas could very well rise independently out of the rubble uh, without any consent required outside of Texas, if they could just make it happen. So it's very difficult to predict how these things are going to play out. My suggestion is to our listeners to just be ready. Be as prepared as you can for any of those situations and do your very best to to plan ahead and stock up. And again, it's only the people who are well prepared who are going to be in a position to, to, to be involved in any political moves like that. Everyone else is just going to be worried about where they're going to get their next meal. Uh, it's yeah, I people think there'll who are well some. prepared who are going to be in a position to speak up. Yeah, I think there'll be some of the, you know, if you guys are all good and nice, we'll just turn the lights back on for you. But if you're not, maybe we'll work on somebody else's lights. I mean, that, <laughs> and I think people that are, you know, it might be not that direct, but that will be the message. And I think people that are desperate will make a deal with anyone and the biggest reason I teach preparedness is so that people can stand instead of kneel uh, when we get into a situation like this. Because I think sooner or later, if not everywhere, somewhere, we're going to have some type of thing like this we're going to have to deal with. And I don't believe for a second that any government, much less one as bloated and as uh, as much of a rising police state of ours, would not use it uh, as an opportunity to further their control. They very well might. And again, we need to be vigilant. And we need to, you know, get those networks established at the local level. You know, if, if you want to just say no to martial law, you have to be in a position to just say no. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. What do you think the biggest thing that people overlook is when it comes to being prepared? Uh, I'd say um, night. People are not prepared for the... the the just the in, uh, incredible darkness that will that will consume our, our nation. People are not set up with night vision gear, and people even people with alternative energy systems are not prepared to black out their houses so that they don't become an inviting beacon at night. People need to be ready to to own the night, and to do that, you really need some pretty sophisticated night vision gear and a alternative power system, probably photovoltaic, to be able to charge batteries for those systems. And uh, along with that, you'll need um, passive in- infrared intrusion detection systems, something like a Dakota Alert is, is the, uh, the easiest to establish. But people need to be prepared to own the, lo- own the night, and you can only do that with the right gear. You really need to plan ahead. You need to buy all that black felt to make blackout shutters for your windows, for example. Most people have not done that. And most people don't have any night vision gear at all or perhaps just one starlight scope. You really need to have some redundancy there as well. 
That's a that's a very um, different answer than I've gotten probably from anybody I've ever asked the question to. So I I really appreciate that. Um, real quick question here from the blog. Uh, people are asking, what do you think maybe uh, you know the, the five biggest opportunities for preppers in a, in a post collapse society might be as far as learning skills now. You know, what would be in demand as a rebuilding began? Well, I think that the the biggest demand is is not all that sexy. It's actually going to be septic pumping. Uh, the I think septic pump, septic pumping services are going to do very well uh, because let's face it, septic tanks are going to fill. They're going to need to be emptied. Someone needs to handle it. Uh, another area that is not particularly sexy is repair businesses. If you look at the that the history of the Great Depression of the 1930s, the businesses that did the best were fix-it shops because no one could afford to buy new appliances, for example, or or new radios or whatever. Um, The businesses that repaired things did the best. Another area um, that if, if, if the grid stays back up that will do really well is probably, surprisingly, Entertainment. People are always going to be seeking escape from their troubles. And I think anyone who does um, uh, like DVD rentals or, or something of that nature is probably going to do pretty well. Although DVDs seem to be on their way out. Sure. But preserving the uh, the entertainment, I think that's something that a lot of people don't really get. I mean, we had... I have people all the time saying they're preparing for an economic collapse, and especially about 2008, 2011, I would ask them how they did with the one we just had. Um, because, you know, it was it was minor compared to what some of the stuff we're talking about, but it really, I mean, I think it was like 9 million people lost jobs, and, you know, right. there was some... There's still a lot of people out of work. And yeah. The economy really hasn't recovered. No, we the, but... We have the illusion of recovery because of all the quantitative easing move, money that's coming out of, out of yeah. the air. But uh, we don't don't have a recovery. To your point, though, one of the sectors that's done really well right through the collapse and continuing on through this, what I call a false recovery, Mm -hmm. uh, is the entertainment sector. Yeah. Um, There's a demand for entertainment. There there really is. Yeah, and and even someone who's, you know, unemployed and twiddling their thumbs on relief is is still going to be looking for escape. Hopefully, they're not going to be looking for escape through drugs and alcohol. Uh, at least you can give someone a, you know, a more you know, positive and hopefully moral uh, outlet than, than abuse. What, what segments of society do you think will be most quickly uh, affected by a major collapse? A lot of people always focus on the poor, that are on these, you know, relief programs and stuff like that, and I think there's a definite risk there. But I, in some I, ways, I think let me let me oh, let me. Yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna say if you let me finish, I I think in some ways it might be the 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 wealthy affluent that mm-hmm. have lots of money but not any real, you know, plan and don't have any real redundancy in their lives. Well, at least the the affluent will uh, be better positioned. Uh, at least they will be crushed by debt. But sure. I, I think that the, the biggest casualties will actually be middle-class people because uh, they don't have the deep pockets of the rich and they don't have the the low expectations of the poor. Mm. Uh, there's an old saying, and that is, it's awfully easy to get along with what you've never had. I think a lot of poor people, especially the rural the rural poor, are going to do quite quite well because they're used to cutting their own firewood, raising their own chickens, having their own garden, and so forth. In the rural areas, I think people will get by just fine. But your urban and suburban middle class people are going to be absolutely hurting because they're they're highly systems dependent. They're not self-sufficient at all. They don't have the, the land area of fertile land to be self-sufficient, they're really going to be at the mercy of the whole situation rather than being in control of it. 
So I think they're going to be the most effective. I think affected. I think that's where they're going to be the the greatest loss of life is going to be in the urban and suburban areas amongst the middle class. And the, the people that will pull through probably the very best are either the lower class um, or or working poor people in rural areas. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the 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 poor in urban areas are maybe able to deal with initial shortages at first because they're used to not having things. But we've so (laughs) yeah, we've disempowered them, right? We've disempowered them through these support programs, which would be. I I, see. I I go in and out on that one, uh, Jim, because I look at that and I go, that could be some of the first things to go away. But then again. It may be some of the last things financially to go away because they want to keep that welfare faucet on, and they'll they'll do that at the expense of the very middle class you're talking about being hit. Because I think, as you and I discussed, this is not. There will be people that say it was overnight, but this is not overnight. This is an erosion. I call it downward class migration, where the media talks about a person. You know, they grew up in an upper middle class family, and now they're you know middle class or lower middle class. I actually see like the whole system sliding behind people. Like even if their income stays stable, and even if they keep their job, like the the, the erosion of inflation, uh, the the erosion of the cost of things like living in a good place or having a good school or things like that are just like sliding everything down behind these people. And I think they'll extract every bit that they can from that group of people and, and keep keep those support systems on for the people that are not producing anymore. And it might be a combination of things: the the ability to to suck and bleed the middle class dry, going out, the, the the labors of the national debt globally, and the individual debts of the counties, cities, and states is something we haven't talked about. And I think in some ways that's a bigger threat because we're talking about billions in pension funds, oh, billions in overhang is huge. Yes, it's it, and that might actually be the uh, the stick of dynamite that blows everything loose. Is these you know start seeing Los Angeles declaring bankruptcy in Chicago? That that's that's probably not as far away as the U.S. government uh, running out of money. It, it very well could be, and, and in fact, I think in the short term, if there's uh, economic crisis in Europe uh, because of the of the whole Euro breakup and the the Eurozone problems, we could actually see an influx of cash coming into the United States to prop things up in the short term. So you may be right. We may actually see um, local and state-level defaults before we see a federal default. And, of course, um, the federal government always has resort to the printing press, which the state, states and local governments don't. Uh, they could always print their way out of the problem and, and have, make a Zimbabwean solution. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. So, I have another one here from you. Are you planning on writing a fifth book in the Patriot series? Yes, I am. In fact, I'm writing it right now. It's going to be titled Liberators, and it's set primarily in Western Canada. Although there's also a a, a bit uh, right near the NSA headquarters in Maryland, and there's also a, a minor storyline in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. But most of it's going to take place in the Bella Coola region of Western Canada, and it's to describe two different waves of invasion uh, and resistance warfare. And, and this book in particular is going to be very heavy on resistance warfare scenarios. Could you talk about a little bit about your latest book uh, that was just released, I believe, around the 1st of October called Expatriates? I've, I, I think that's your fourth novel. I've read two. Right. I read your first one, and then I... Don't remember if it which one it was, but it started out with the the guy in Afghanistan and him that getting home. So, that was the second one, yes. Yeah, so I read the first and second. I haven't read your third book. The third, uh, third novel was called Founders, and that was set uh, in part in western Montana. Uh, the fourth one, Expatriates, is kind of a departure. It's set in the exact same time period. It's it's contemporaneous with the other novels, but the main characters are American expatriates living in the Philippines and Australia although there's also a storyline that takes place in central Florida, near Tavares. That novel uh, has been quite successful. It hit number 21 on the New York Times bestseller list. And I think it really resonated with a large number of Americans that either live overseas or have relatives living overseas. 
there's presently 17 million Americans living overseas. There's a lot of deployed American servicemen. There's people in missionary work, people in the oil industry, students, just a, and of course a lot of retirees in places like Panama and Costa Rica. There's a huge number of people uh, from the United States that live overseas, and I wanted to show their perspective what it would be like for some someone for an American living overseas in the in the event of a global collapse. Just the uncertainty of, of being out of contact with your family members alone would be very stressful. Now, in, in that group of people, we have what I call two distinctive groups. Um, we have people that uh, are abroad that plan on one day coming back, and then we have you know what I would call an actual true expatriate, someone that has permanently. You know, they might visit the U.S., but they have made, and some have done it because they are worried about things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and have decided basically to go to Costa Rica and take the short six-month path to citizenship. Um, would you describe the people in this book as being both sides of that, or one well, predominantly? Um, the the one family is an American missionary family in the Philippines, and the other is a young Texas oil engineer who moves to Darwin, Australia. And um, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but uh, suffice it to say that things become so uncomfortable in the Philippines that that missionary family actually flees to Australia. And a lot of the book has to do with that. Uh, I've, I've seen the different approaches that people take. I just need to warn your listeners that if you're thinking about expatriating, it's very important that you have a, a solid plan that you have the finances to make it happen, and that you have a a support infrastructure waiting for you. If you have relatives living overseas or if you're marrying into a a family, you might have a pretty good chance of it. Otherwise, you're probably going to be just the expendable new guy gringo that just blew into town before everything fell apart. I don't think it'll be a very enviable situation because you'll be in in a foreign culture, probably in a, a nation speaking a foreign language, and you'll be seen as an outsider. I, I don't think your chances of survival will be very high in a worst case. If it's just yeah. a repeat of the, of the Great Depression, you might do fine, but if it's a total global economic collapse, I don't think being an expatriate will be a very comfortable situation for most folks. Yeah, I'd say the person that moves to the mountainsides of Costa Rica, you better be there from day one with a Mother Teresa attitude and 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 become part of that community as quickly as possible and valued. And I think I don't even think that's just an expatriates thing, uh, Jim. I think that's like if you end up moving somewhere while this is all going on, uh, or not all going on while we're leading up to something like this. When you hit the ground, you should be introducing yourself to neighbors right away. You should right. be integrating yourself, whether it's in Costa Rica or California, with the people around you. So a couple things. One, that you're valued as a member of the community. And two, I think there's people that you meet them and you immediately know this person's going to be a threat. And you need to know that. I'm not saying that that person needs to be like on a takeout list or something. That's kind of ridiculous. But just the fact that you know that that person over there appears to be someone with a drug habit and you know, and kind of with a bent toward violence, and you need to know that that person is is there, um, and you also want to try to mitigate those things wherever you can, and I'm certainly not suggesting you walk around with I'm a prepper t-shirt on uh, (laughs) by any means, but, you know, there's people like me that I I can only hide what I do so much. I'm in the public eye, Um, but I say for the person that's that's doing this for themselves and and, in their area, you got to be smart about how you do it, but you do want to build that community regardless of wh- where you're at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that is crucial. Uh, you don't want to be seen as the expendable new guy, even if it's here in the States. There's a, uh, a lot to be said for community. There's a lot to be said for getting to know your neighbors. Uh, again, you want to be very selective about what you announce to your neighbors. Uh, you really need to get to know them, to know what the level of trust is before you you tip your hand. But, again, without community, you're sunk. Let's, let's ask something about your books here, because I just noticed this when I pulled them up on Amazon, because I'll make sure I have links to all of them in the show notes today for people. When I read your uh, your first two books, I didn't see an option for audio. Now I see that, uh, even going back to your first book, they're yeah, all on audio. audio books and e-books available for all of them. When, when did the audio thing happen? And I mean, who did you get to narrate that? Or 
Well, actually, my publishers made all the arrangements. Uh, there have been a couple of different uh, narrators. They're excellent. For anyone excellent. who likes audiobooks, uh, folks who commute or truck drivers or whoever, or for blind people, um, the audiobooks, I think, are a really good alternative. And I, I do recommend them. Uh, and, of course, e-books have, are verging on becoming uh, predominant here. Uh, I think 40% of books currently sold are now e-books. And I think that as time goes on, we'll see that become predominant. And I'm really glad to see that they've created e-books. Uh, in fact, I just signed a contract with my, uh, my agent to allow uh, European distribution of my e-books. So um, it will definitely become predominant in the next few years. Um, I know your your time is limited. I'm kind of been keeping an eye on the the clock since you told me what what time you had available today. And I'd like to finish up with one more, and then we'll make sure we get a good plug in for your uh, your blog, etc. Um, but one person on the blog asked, uh, said, hey, and I don't know the meaning of this. Ask him about betting the house on silver. Get your popcorn ready. Uh, I don't know about the popcorn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, I think he's implying that it's going to be a big show. I think that silver is is definitely the way to go if you're going to go into precious metals. Uh, silver is much more appropriate for barter, especially small silver. We're talking one ounce uh, or less. And I think that silver is much more likely to double than gold. Uh, when you buy silver, it's essentially like buying a penny stock compared to gold. It is not that far for silver to go from $22 an ounce to $44 an ounce. It's a lot farther for gold to double in price. So the chances, I think, are, are much better for, for rapid appreciation of silver versus gold. Um, you know, there's a number of, of, um, of reasons and that, that silver is better. And another one is, of course, that silver is currently undervalued versus gold, and silver is being uh, consumed, whereas most gold is recycled. So in the long term, I think the ratio of the price of gold or silver to gold is probably going to go back to about 15 to 1, maybe even as, as low as 10 to 1. So that, too, is another reason to invest in silver rather than gold, because I think the, the appreciation right there will be better for silver. Uh, I'm a big believer in precious metals, but I always have to add the caveat, get your beans, bullets, and Band-Aids squared away yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely say first, and I, over and over again. I, I've pretty much advised people over time to insure in anywhere between five to ten percent of your wealth with silver and/or gold. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I get real nervous on people that are holding silver, though, for short periods of time when people are getting ready to do something major and they have plans for their funds and. Mm -hmm. Uh, they might be spending that money in the next six months, and I've seen people dump all that money into silver, and that really concerns me because it's just as easy in the short term for silver to go from 22 to 44 as it is for it to go from 22 to 11. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it, it is It is definitely a risk. Uh, now, if someone has uh, going to be parking funds for a year or, to, or two before they buy a property, I think uh, silver would probably be a fairly safe bet, especially since silver has lost uh, a bit of value in dollar terms in the last few months. So we're looking at about $22 silver right now. Uh, if, they had, if someone had bought when it was 29 and it was, was now looking at $22, they'd probably be screaming at me right now. But presently at $22 an ounce, I don't think it's that huge a risk. Uh, the downside risk is fairly small. But again, hedge your bets. I'm, I'm just as big a believer in buying common caliber ammunition as I am silver. Sure, absolutely. Um, one of the things I wanted to make sure we did here at the end, uh, Jim, was to make sure people know about your blog. I think most, most people know of your blog, survivalblog.com. But I think when people hear Survival Blog, they figure, well, it's a blog, and, 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 and James and his, his folks blog there you know, daily. There's new stuff out. But you actually have a, a great deal more available than just daily uh, stories and, and writings. You have quite a bit of resources as well, right? Yeah, there, there's some very deep archives at Survival Blog. They date back seven years, and they're all fully accessible. There's no super-secret members-only area. It's all fully accessible, fully searchable. 
if you were to print out everything from Survival Blog, it would be over 9,000 printed pages. And there's everything there imaginable related to family preparedness, everything on food storage, communications, first aid, home security, you name it, it's all there. And again, it's all freely available to everyone. I, I didn't want to, to limit it. So please, for all your listeners, especially, especially those who are listening to this, say, oh, well, he's a novelist. Well, I, I, there's also a lot of nonfiction material available free of charge. You don't have to buy my books. Please take full advantage of it, folks. Again, it's survivalblog.com. Yeah, and I I hope you don't think this is a backhanded compliment because it's not. It's a it's genuine, straightforward compliment. I actually find a, a tremendously larger value in your hard-based factual stuff than I do in your novels. Um, I'm glad I you think, do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're at there. your yeah. yeah, I think you're at your best, and I think your your background as an Army Intel officer has a, a lot to do with that. And there's a lot of people that talk about what government might do. I tend to lend credence to folks like yourself, uh, folks like Glenn Tate, who's worked as an attorney at the, the state level inside of government, that have been, you know, one way or another privy to the backroom conversations and the thought processes that go on in those environments. And I do to the person that just is, you know, an outsider looking in, making their best guess. Not that they're always wrong, but... When someone says, well, this is what these people will do in this scenario, it's be and it's because they've heard them plan for it and talk about it, that has a great deal of weight with me. And uh, I, I know as a, as a former soldier myself, it must have took something um, special within you to, at a point, decide this was no longer what you wanted and to, uh, to make a huge step like resigning a commission. Yeah, and. Well, uh, well, well, Jack, like, for example, you mentioned something just now that I, I think I, I really ought to comment on, and that is uh, when I worked as an intelligence officer, I worked in what's called a SCIF, which is a sensitive compartmented information facility. It's basically a great big vault full of file cabinets, and these days a lot of computers. Uh, the SCIF that I worked in part of the time was a, a co-located SCIF with a, a – with the, a bunch of the classified holdings for FEMA. Hmm. And they had more file cabinets than we did. It was scary. And, and, and they mainly worked different hours than me, and, and I didn't have access to their compartments, nor did they have access to mine. But knowing all that was there and that the majority of it had nothing to do with disaster preparedness for the citizenry, it had everything to do with continuity of government, was very frightening to me. There are, there are big plans in place for continuity of government, and don't let anyone fool you. FEMA's main job is not disaster mitigation. It's continuity of government. Yeah, I, I think that's been the case in a lot of situations, that we've heard one thing, but preservation of the state has been the, the primary motivation of government in more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. um, and I what I was saying, though, toward the end there is that your decision to, to resign a commission had to be something that wasn't easy to do. And I full well know that based on the fact that you weren't, you know, the, the uh, writer that you are today, it wasn't done as a political statement or like, look at me. It was done out of a belief. Yeah, and it, it, uh, it, it takes a, a lot. And I want to, yeah. I, I want to thank you for, well, I want to thank you for the moral courage to do something like that. Well, thanks. I, you know, if I'd stayed in, I probably would be, with my peer group right now, and they're all retiring as lieutenant colonels, colonels, and in some cases, um, verging on brigadier generals, uh, if I'd stayed in. But I decided to get out as a captain, and, and it was, again, a moral decision. I, you know, sometimes you just have to say, this is the right thing to do, and stick to your guns and do it. There, there's, the time, there's a time, you know, to be wishy-washy about some things, but when it comes to the big decisions... You really need to, to, you know, make a righteous stand sometimes. Absolutely. Well, again, uh, the website is uh, survivalblog.com. Uh, I will have links to, uh, to Jim's site uh, and to all of his books on Amazon in the show notes for you guys today. 
And um, Jim, man, thanks for being with us on the show. Uh, I've had a lot of requests to have you on. We've been doing this now almost six years. Uh, so it's great to finally have you on uh, the show. And if you ever want to come back on uh, to talk about another book or to go deep into you know any individual component of the things we've talked about today, uh, just get with us, and uh, I'll get Dorothy to schedule, and we'll be happy to have you back on any time. Well, thank you so much, and, and uh, God bless you and all your listeners. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spears, today along with Jim Rawls, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.